Snagtooth. Snagtooth. Oh, my. Ugh. He is not coming back from that. Well, class, I hope that you have all learned something from Snagtooth's sacrifice about the importance of following proper safety protocols when performing daily maintenance on the various traps throughout the dungeon. Well, without out of the way, your orientation is now complete. You are now officially inducted into the ranks of his eminence, Gormonger the Bloodthirsty. Terror of Blackreach, Scion of Talion the Unmaker, Dreadlord of the North, first of his name, long may he pain. Now, before we dismiss to collect our commemorative coffee mugs and participation ribbons, are there any final questions from the graduates? Yes, 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 over here. Anyone? Anyone at all? <sighs> oh, for the hate of all that is good and holy, yes! Wongbeg, stop jumping around and just spit it out. Yes! What can you tell us about the boss? What's he like? Like, what's he all about? Well, the answer is really quite simple. Oh, 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 because I heard that once he was just a normal guy, and then he came on this, like, cursed armor, and now he is just like a meat puppet for the armor of Angramore and seeks the total destruction of all things pink and cuddly. Where do you come up with this garbage? Oh, oh, or I heard that he's the lost prince of this like ancient civilization and now he is raising this army to reconquer the land of his forefathers. Are you just making things up now? Oh, 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 oh. I also heard that he was born on a moonless night to a hag mother and a demon lord father. Before he took his first breath, he strangled them both to death with his bare hands and drank their blood instead of milk. Absolutely not. He is rage incarnate, the very embodiment of evil and the vice principle of vengeance. All right, listen up. Oh. It seems as though there's a lot of misinformation that's been perpetuated throughout my students. Allow me to set the record straight once and for all, and introduce you to the real Gormonger the Bloodthirsty. So I says to the Baylor, Artificer, I hardly know her. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's a classic. Jeez. Uh, oh man. Okay, anyway. Oh. What are we talking about this week? We are talking about villains in your campaign. Yay! My favorite part. Yeah. It's the what what was it that you said about them? Oh, uh, they're pretty much the closest thing the Dungeon Master is going to get to having a player character. Yeah, and that's really true. There are actually a lot of parallels between a Dungeon Master designing the villain and a player character designing their hero. You go through a lot of the same steps, and it certainly takes at least that much effort. Plus, I mean, they're going to be around for the whole campaign, just like the player characters are. You know, lieutenants or minions or minor inconveniences on the path to becoming heroes of the realm are going to come and go and probably die uh, gruesomely and quickly. Sure. But your villain, your villain's going to hang around. Your villain is going to be active and involved in the events of the campaign from start to finish. Right, and that is actually going to take a little bit of work because as your players increase in power, they're going to become more and more capable of dealing with the threats that you put up against them. So you not only need to design a villain that is going to be compelling and uh, powerful, but you're also going to need to design one that can stand up to the player characters, you know, so that you don't have to contrive ways to keep them alive long enough to tell their evil plan. So when I'm starting to design a new campaign when i'm thinking up uh of getting a group together and playing some dungeons and dragons but i need a story to tell them the villains usually where i start that's the first thing that goes through your mind when you're starting a new campaign it absolutely is when i'm looking for inspiration i'm looking through the monster manual or volo's guide to monsters flipping through it reading the little entries learning about the different things and thinking to myself what if this but bigger and meaner. And what, what would this thing do if it was around long enough 
to really cause some problems. Yeah. And I've done the same thing just looking through the PHB and thinking, oh, you know what? This would be really cool. If I was actually playing an evil character, this is what I would do. This is how I would build him out. This is how I would stat him. This is the spells I would give him. And then I think, wow, I just made a villain. That's great. Uh, this is the good campaign. <laughs> so that this is the opportunity to, for DMs to scratch that itch and uh, you know just make a really bad guy. I think we're going to really enjoy talking about not so good player characters at some point yeah but that's not what we're talking about today we are talking about villains the bbegs the big bad evil guys and gals who are opposed to the party so steve Mm -hmm. what makes a good villain in your opinion you know what that's actually a really interesting question because you and i share a certain philosophy when it comes to villains in narratives whether it is a TV show or a movie or a book, you and I often find that the villains have more compelling stories than the protagonists. You know, in a lot of cases, I do find that to be true. Um, Reading through books or watching movies and TV shows, I often find that the villain can make or break the story and that they're arcs are more compelling i watch uh let's say netflix's castlevania series Mm -hmm. season one trevor belmont cool i guess you know gets kicked into a mud puddle and kicked around a bar by some humans in the first episode sure alcoholic sad yeah what every hero should be right talking about me or trevor belmont (laughs) fair question uh trevor belmont but Dracula, you know, episode one, we get introduced to this guy who cares nothing about the world, who is above it, part of it, but very separated from it. And he's humanized by meeting a woman who he falls in love with, who changes his mind on humans. Right. And then they live happily ever after for the rest of the series, right? Uh, No, uh, they experience tragedy and loss and violent rage. And And how does Dracula take that? What does he do with all of this violent rage that is welling up within him? Um, Genocide. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So the long way of me having you answer your own question to get back around to this is that Okay, actually, Dracula from the Castlevania series was a fantastic uh, example because I watched the show for him too, right? Because I usually do find the villains, as I said, more compelling. And I haven't liked the subsequent seasons as well because, uh, let's just say, they feature him less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are other bad vampires, but none of them are as compelling as Dracula. And you know why? You know why? It's because we related to Dracula. He started out in a certain place in his life in a certain frame of mind and then he changed right things got good then they got worse and when they got worse he had a very natural pardon the expression human reaction and then he used the wealth of power at his disposal to take that way too far when we were getting ready for this villain episode we kind of started from different places you took this sympathetic villain who experienced some kind of tragedy, who experienced loss, and then responded to it negatively, but swung the needle all the way into the red. Right. Whereas I was coming more from a standpoint of they're bad, they've always been bad, they're always going to be bad. It's clearly black and white, let's go stop this guy from doing something that ruins the world. Sure. You know, both of those are actually very compelling, but for very different reasons, right? There's a part of you that wants to see the villain who has been maligned get some sort of justice, right? And that's compelling. And then uh, the antithesis of that, I suppose, is when you have a villain who is just completely, unquestionably vile and destructive and hateful, and you just want to see someone come in and teach that guy a lesson but in both cases you are compelled by their presence so dracula is a good example from the castlevania series versus dracula in bram stoker's original classic book i don't i have read that many times have you i ever made you read that i i fall asleep when i read books sad to say okay fair enough 
you know how Dracula is in Castlevania. Again, he's relatable. He's sympathetic. He's charming. Mm-hmm. In Bram Stoker's Dracula, he is alien. He is mysterious. He is dark. He is twisted. He is inhuman. He is a monster. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the classic monsters. And there's no good in him. There's no backstory on why he is this way or how he got there. You just know what he is now, what he's willing to do, and what he will stop at to see his goals achieve, which, spoilers, is nothing. Right. The only question at that point is, just how much is he capable of, and is there a way to stop him? Which, fortunately for everyone in Bram Stoker's Dracula, yes. Yes, there is. Yeah. It's just not going to be a fun time getting there. Right. And that should sort of be the story in your campaigns as well. But uh, So let's talk a little bit about villain motivation, and let's let's start with your favorite perspective. Let's start with taking something relatable and taking it way too far. Who that our listeners might know is a good example of a villain like this? I've got a bunch of great examples of this. Um, a lot of them actually come from Marvel Comics uh, because Fair. Uh, Stan Lee and the other writers were very concerned with, you know, uh, the story kind of like behind the superhero, you know. Mm. The one that immediately springs to mind because of the, you know, however many movies was in the Avengers series <laughs> of the MCU is Thanos, okay? Thanos sees a problem. There's not enough resources to go around in the universe. Thanos determines the solution. There need to be less people in the universe. Thanos then shoulders the burden of enacting that solution and takes it upon himself to start gathering the Infinity Stones. On his way, he goes ahead and starts the genocide just to make sure that, you know, the universe will survive until he collects them. But his end goal is to solve what he perceives to be a problem. Obviously, he's going the wrong way about it and taking it way too far. Uh, but he thinks that he's in the right, and that is actually what motivates him. Not his desire to see cultures and civilizations, you know, destroyed. His goal is actually to preserve culture and civilization by doing so. But he doesn't take pleasure in seeing people die. He takes pleasure and purpose from the thought of others surviving. See, that is an important thing there that you're touching on is Thanos does not perceive himself as a villain. Thanos perceives himself as the hero. Right. He's doing what needs to be done. He actually has everyone else's best interests at heart. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to be this guy. But, you know, someone's got to do it, and Thanos is going to step up. Thanos came to work today. And, you know, Thanos is actually an interesting example because he is only this way in the MCU. If you actually go back and check out the Marvel comics, the reason he wants to kill half the universe is to impress the living incarnation of death because he has the hots for her. Less heroic. Yeah. So, obviously, I relate to the MCU version a lot more. Another good example would be Magneto, also from Marvel Comics. Okay, mm. Magneto is a mutant. So he was mistreated when he was a child, and he grows up and sees that mutants are being discriminated against across the world. He sees mutants as the next evolution of mankind, and that the rest of humanity is just holding them back and he seeks to correct that injustice, okay? He wants to make sure that not only are mutants no longer being discriminated against, but they're actually held aloft in the position of power and prestige where he feels that they deserve to be, and he's taking it upon himself to enact this social change. It's kind of like a, a, a reform, but the way that he is going about it is obviously extremely detrimental to all of the non-mutants in the world, and that's why heroes like the X-Men have to step in to preserve human life. You know, I sympathize with Magneto's perspective on this and Magneto's story so much. He's a very interesting character in that fiction. 
to the point that if I were in that world, if I were a mutant, I would probably be part of the Brotherhood. Yeah. Hey, another one is uh, Killmonger from the Black Panther movies. Like, uh, that, he was a very sympathetic character. A lot of people kind of walked out of that movie wondering, okay, was he actually the bad guy, though? Mm. And I guess the correct answer is yes, because it has to be. Because um, <laughs> you don't want Black Panther to end out the movie having killed a good guy. Um, but that line was very blurred during that during that movie. Uh, okay. Let's cut the Marvel examples just for one example, and we'll go to a DC example, <laughs> uh, which is Lex Luthor, okay? Right, right, right. A lot of people think of him as, you know, the foil to Superman. Um, he's just a normal guy with a lot of money and a lot of power. And we always think of him as being classically bad because he wants to kill Superman. Um, people who actually have read these comics will know, and people who have read these comics more than me will probably correct me on something, um, but Lex Luthor's primary motivation is to save humanity, which you kind of would think is weird, because it seems like, well, that's also Superman's primary motivation, so how could they ever disagree on this? Lex Luthor thinks that Superman's presence on Earth has made humanity complacent. It has made them reliant upon Superman to solve all of their problems, and in so doing, has kept them from meeting and exceeding their potential, from continuing to improve, from continuing to evolve. So he specifically wants to get rid of Superman for the betterment of humankind's future. Right. Maybe at the expense of humankind's present. Man, I, I really wish we could talk about the villain in the campaign that I'm currently running because there are some there are some parallels there. Do it. Uh, Do it now. Spoil everything for me. No, no, can't talk about it. <laughs> Too spoilery. You're a tease. You're a tease, Rob. But I'm, I'm pretty... I'm proud of him. Um, he's so good. One day we can either come back and drop him in here or we'll give you a special episode to talk about your special boy. I mean, we both deserve that. We've talked about the ones that I relate to, the guys who have a relatable motivation, who see themselves as the heroes who are solving a problem and have just disregarded all the consequences of their actions and taken it way too far. What are some other reasons that you might have to become the big bad evil guy in someone's campaign? <laughs> well, kind of like when we were talking about player motivations and how to roleplay them, Villains are also motivated. Extremely so. Yeah. Villains can be motivated by any number of things, and uh, they can be motivated by fear. They could be uh, motivated by misguided humanitarianism. Lex or, Luthor, yep. Yeah, or perceived injustice. or Magneto, yeah. Revenge, ambition, power, obsession, or just their nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to brag on my own campaign setting for a second. Yes, uh, tell us about another villain that is not a spoiler for my current campaign. That's much less exciting. A, a perpetual antagonist in my campaigns is this group that calls themselves the Arcane Research Collective. They are essentially a bunch of racist humans who look around the plethora of D&D races and see that all other races are more magically gifted than them. Right. Humans are basic, exactly. <laughs> Gnomes and elves are born with this connection to magic that they don't have. Sure. Uh, tabaxi and turtles have natural advantages that humans lack. Tieflings and Asimar have inherent spellcasting too, yeah. And halflings are just so dang lucky. Yeah. Um, they believe that when the inevitable race war comes upon my campaign setting that humans are going to be lacking in the magic department and are going to get magically nuked. Like, it's a nuclear war and they're bringing swords and sticks to the fight, right? Right. Uh, so their project, what they're spending their time doing, is corralling humans 
with magical potential or enough intelligence to potentially become wizards and instructing them in magic. And they are drafting people and splitting up families and indoctrinating them. And they're generally not good folks with not good goals, but they think that they are preserving humanity and they are motivated by fear of extinction or of forced servitude. The future of their race depends on them succeeding. I think that if you dig down deep enough, you will find that fear is one of the most basic motivators. I've read some, some articles and things where psychologists were talking about how fear is the motivator for humanity. It could be fear of loss. It could be uh, fear of the unknown. It could be some other examples of fear that I can drop in later. (laughs) But if you dig deep enough into just about any person's motivation, you are likely to find fear at the root of it. And it's always good to find what your villain is afraid of um i really love the tv show gallivant oh my gosh yes uh this would be a weird poll we could have Um, a whole episode about how great gallivant is (laughs) i'm interested to see how you're going to tie it into this episode season two of gallivant okay the villain is mr wormwood right the the doo-doo guy he is pretty fearless He is a motivated villain who is trying to spread the dark arts and he is trying to establish himself as a ruler, but he's afraid of his one weakness, which is the sword of the one true king to unite them all. It's prophesied that that is the only thing that he can be killed by. And when that card is on the table, of course you're going to be scared of that. You're going to do everything you can to make sure that the one true king to unite them all and his sword don't get in the same postcode as you. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a really good example. So, you know who does villains really well? Are you going to say yourself? No, but that's... I'm I'm glad you did. (laughs) Disney. Huh, okay. They literally made a board game out of how cool their villains are. You know, when I think of Disney villains, all I could normally think about is just how many of them die by falling to their death. If you stop and think about it, it's an insane percentage. I think that's going to be most of the ones I'm talking about. No? Well, some. Uh, So let's take um, a villain motivated by revenge in Disney. Captain Hook comes to mind. Peter Pan took his hand, fed it to a crocodile, and now all day, every day, all Captain Hook wants to do is make Peter pay for what he did. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he took it very well. Yeah. Revenge is a great motivation for a villain. Somebody did something to him at some point that made him particularly angry, and he's going to take it out on definitely the offending party and anyone that gets in his way. We talked about Jack Sparrow a few episodes back talking about um, role-playing and combat and how to make things more immersive. That was Jack's motivation all through the Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, is I want to get back at my first mate who left me stranded on an island with one bullet. Yeah, a lot of uh, players tend to save that for their player characters. You know, oh yes, we have a nemesis out there or an arch-villain who we have to seek our vengeance upon, or maybe that's just me because I keep playing Oath of Vengeance Paladins. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, don't forget that that is a very excellent motivator for your villains as well. Going back to Castlevania, that's what Dracula is dealing with in Season 1. You know, he wants to take out that injustice upon the church, and then he extends it to all of humanity very quickly. Mm. Uh, And like you said... Villains are just player characters who take their motivations way too far. So, yeah, you could easily make a player character who is motivated by vengeance, but you could also do the same thing for your villain. Well, you made a pretty broad, sweeping statement about how all Disney villains were great, or how many Disney villains were great. What are some other ones that you look to when you're 
trying to think of a motivation for any of the characters in your campaign. Okay. So um, one of my favorite movies, uh, Emperor's New Groove. Oh, yeah. Yzma is our villain in this movie. What is she motivated by? Hmm. I'm going to say she wants power. Yeah, she is ambitious. She's tired of playing second fiddle to the likes of Kuzco, these just vacant beings who don't deserve the power that they have. She's worked hard at this. She's been doing this for a long time. She is deserving, and she's going to get what's hers. Um, Same thing for Scar from The Lion King. Oh, yeah. He's never going to be the king. He's never going to be in charge of the pride. But if he kills Mufasa, then he gets everything he deserves. Right. He's the ill-fated second son who is uh, out of the line of succession. But he is first in line of succession if something happens to the current king, you know, while the son is still too young to take over. And that is a classic villainous motivation is... I want what I don't have. I am underappreciated. I'm going to get mine. Yeah. You know, I think we could probably lump Jafar in with those two because the lust for power and ambition are pretty much Jafar in a nutshell. In fact, he has some very clear similarities to Yzma and Scar in that regard. He's just one step away from being the most powerful person in the land, but that one step is just so close and yet so far and that sort of thing just grinds against these characters like almost is just not enough i love jafar as a villain because his ambition grows like every half hour in that movie we're of course talking about the original animated version because jafar felt a little lackluster in the new live action one i don't recognize those as existing will smith was great the new musical numbers were fantastic jafar fell a little flat some of them some of them were fantastic not all of them uh but jafar in disney's aladdin the original animated one first he he wanted to be sultan then he wanted to be sultan and get the girl then he goes up to i want to be the most powerful dude in the world and even that's not enough now i want to be an all-powerful genie he is fantastic his hubris his reckless drive this lust for power is it's not the most relatable thing but it makes him memorable And that's the quality you want in a villain. Uh, To go back to what you were saying earlier about taking something a little bit too far, uh, one of the great motivators for the hero in fiction and in real life is love, right? Mm -hmm. Take that a little too far, that love can become obsession. And obsession is a great motivation for a villain that you want something that you can't have and you just can't let it go. It consumes you. Uh, an example of this would be Frollo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Okay. Um, he is so fixated on Esmeralda that it breaks him to the point that if he can't have her, no one can. Mm. Um Kind of the same story with Gaston. He's really obsessed with Belle. Uh, there's other pretty girls in that town, and he doesn't want Belle because she's the prettiest girl in town. No, he wants Not because Belle. she's the smartest girl in town. He wants Belle because she's the one girl who won't give him the time of day, and that is damaging to his ego. Yep, it's the what he can't have is what he wants, and the links that he's willing to go to break the morality that we associate with him at the beginning of the movie he's a jerk but he's he's not a bad guy but that obsession poisons him to the point that he is driven to do kind of unspeakable and horrific things to bell's dad and to endanger the town and to kill the beast sight unseen You know, it's funny how well that ties back into 
uh, Scar and Yzma and Jafar, um, those people were all like viziers and royalty and uh, advisors to the king. These were the second most powerful people in the land or in the empire or what have you. They had it good. Exactly. There was always just one thing, just one thing that they didn't have. And, you know, in Gaston and Frollo's case, that was a girl. And in uh, Scar's case, it was the crown, you know, and pretty much did it. Ditto Yzma and Jafar. Those characters have just so much in common. I'm just now realizing that they could pretty much have been dropped into the other movie and it still would have been fine. Mm. Um, okay, so yeah, there's a lot of different reasons that your uh, villain might be in the position that they're in. What motivates them can be varied, but it's going to either stem from a reasonable place of there's a problem and I need to fix it no matter the cost, or it could arise as so many things do out of fear, fear of loss, fear of the unknown, uh, fear of lack of recognition, um, fear of, you know, dying without having accomplished your goals. Um, or it could come from ambition, obsession. Um, yeah, just lots of different things that can take you where you need to go. Um, but there are also some characters that can be just as compelling who are evil for evil's sake. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, of course I agree. Uh, (laughs) These are the guys that stand out to me. These villains are memorable for a different reason because you don't know how or why they tick. You don't, there's no sense to what they're doing. You can't understand them and that makes them more terrifying. If you look at the classic universal monsters, Dracula, um, based on the Bram Stoker's Dracula we were discussing earlier, uh, the mummy, not the Brendan Fraser version, <laughs> uh, Wolfman, or the creature from the Black Lagoon, these things are just monsters, literally and figuratively monsters. Uh, I read the Cirque du Freak series by Darren Shan. It features a character, spoilers for Cirque du Freak if you haven't read it, named Steve Leonard, who goes by the name Steve Leopard in a strange little contrivance. Uh, This isn't much of a spoiler because in the first book, within the first several chapters, um, a vampire drinks Steve Leonard's blood spits it out and declares that Steve has bad blood. Hmm. That he can't become a vampire. Can never happen because he is evil. And that is a genetic predisposition in the fiction of Cirque du Freak. Huh. I have not read Cirque du Freak, so are vampires not evil in Cirque du Freak? Is it saying he cannot physically become a vampire or this must not happen because evil vampires are so bad? The second thing. Ah, okay. I'm guessing that happens at some point. Um, no. Maybe that is a spoiler. <laughs> the, the, um, they, they create other things that are totally not vampires so that the vampires can be quasi-good and hmm. still have something that's definitely evil that they can fight. I have got an example of one of these. Oh, go. Yeah, okay. Go for it. Um, because I am such a Tolkien nut, Sauron is the personification of evil in the Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to talk about him so much in the next episode that it probably won't even be funny, (laughs) but we don't know a whole lot about his motivations in, you know, like in the movies or in the way it's subjugation. Okay. He has set himself up since a previous age to be the guy in charge. Uh, And he is trying to bring that plan back to fruition. Um, But he is willing to pay whatever cost it takes to get there. And it is not because of any sort of redeemable, you know, relatable reason. He is here to subjugate and dominate 
the rest of Middle Earth, and he will stop at nothing until he has done so. That's a great example, and especially because he is mysterious and unknowable to the forces that contend with him. You know, Frodo doesn't get Sauron. You know, they don't talk to one another and establish motivations and, uh, what is it, syndrome? You know, Frodo doesn't get him monologuing. No, no. And we're going to talk about this some in the next episode about once you have designed your villain, how you can implement him and make their presence known to the party in a way that is really going to make a lasting impact with the players. Because the worst thing that you can do is have a villain who you've put all this effort into and then the party doesn't care. Um, but we'll, we'll cover that here in a minute. Let's, let's get our villains designed. Well, one more example of a, uh, a bad guy who's bad for bad's sake. You know, before we got to know Anakin Skywalker, we had Darth Vader in A New Hope. Through the scope of that first Star Wars movie, through Episode Four, we don't know who Vader is. We don't know where he came from. We don't know what he's up to. He is the guy that represents the Galactic Empire. He is the guy that chokes out his own people. He's the guy that has really badass music start playing when he starts walking out of a starship. And he's the guy that kills an old man with a lightsaber. You know, they did a lot of things right in that first Star Wars movie for, you know, the time. Like, they set up that the Empire is bad by showing Darth Vader kill someone the very second time that he is on camera. They differentiate him from everyone else in the room because everyone else in the room is wearing white, he's wearing black. He's taller than everybody else in any scene that he's in. Yep, it apparently doesn't care whether he's uh, killing the rebels or killing his underlings, like you said a second ago. And even his underlings are afraid of him. Exactly, yeah. You know, they didn't take the very first step to make him relatable in any way, shape, or form until episode six. And those were just the most minute possible steps. And they didn't really dive into his backstory or why he is the way he is until episode one. Um, I'm actually a guy who really doesn't mind the prequels. I will say the transition from Anakin Skywalker to Darth Vader was a little... To me, it felt a little contrived. And I'm sure... I'm going to get a lot of hate for saying that. Come on to the Discord and tell me how wrong I am. I would love to have some more members on there. <laughs> All right, but as we were saying, uh, one thing that every villain needs is something to do. Mm-hmm. They need a way to make their villainous dreams come true, and that is the plot. It might do to give an example of how to do this incorrectly. May I? Please. All right, I really hate to hate on any sort of published content but no you i don't. have <laughs> well you know i owe a lot to wizards of the coast because i love this hobby and they gave me the book for the lost minds of fandelver which is the only campaign that i have run to date um the lost minds of fandelver has two villains that appear throughout the course of that storyline one is a leader of the red brands known as glassstaff and one is the big bad evil guy of the story called the Black Spider. Real quick. Yes. Awesome to have titles for your villains instead of names. I mean, that much they got right. Oh, I agree. Definitely. Glass Staff, Black Spider, you know, much more intimidating than Dave or Keith, you know. Watch out for Keith. Right. And if we did give Glass Staff's real name, that would be a spoiler for Lost Minds of Fendelver. But interestingly enough, knowing the Black Spider's real name would have absolutely no impact on the players whatsoever. I really wish that it would. But that's kind of what I wanted to talk about with these guys. These villains are fairly one-dimensional. I've read that module back and forth, and granted, it's a small module. It's an introductory module. It's not going to be their greatest work. If you want their greatest work, go read and play Curse of Strahd. But... (laughs) Both Glassstaff and the Black Spider do not have a significant motivation listed at all. Mm -hmm. Glassstaff wants power. 
the module tells you what he gave up in pursuit of it and how he went about it, but that's that's really about it as far as his motivation is concerned. He has uh, hitched his coattails to the Black Spider in the hopes that the Black Spider's rise to power will grant him the city of Phandalin. So that's his lofty aspirations. He just basically wants to run the town. Which, if you remember, is kind of a crappy town. I mean, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Hardly anybody lives there. There's next to no resources there or reason to want it. It's it's a little weak. And I mean, as you play through the adventure, you realize that there is there is a reason to want to be there and there's something to be gained. But like you're saying, it doesn't feel like a great villainous motivation. Yeah, well... Glassstaff does have plans for the future. If the Black Spider's plans come to fruition, then Fandolin is going to be a hot spot. It's going to be worth something. And that's why he thinks he's getting in on the ground level of this operation. The Black Spider, on the other hand, we know a little bit about him from context clues. Uh, we know that, once again, he wants power. He wants to find the Forge of Spells but we have no idea what he's going to do once he acquires it. Mm. Absolutely none at all. Because the module just assumes that you're going to prevent that, so it doesn't matter. If I could change something about that little starting adventure, it would be to draw out, like to include, and then allow the players to draw out some sort of overarching uh, motivation or uncover a deep dark plot that the black spider was a part of and now you've killed him but the the machinations continue you know how he was part of something bigger or how he as a means of accomplishing his goals had put something into motion which now cannot be stopped um it's they're just so incredibly one-dimensional and i think we've established that having a one-dimensional villain is fine but they just it just fell flat. <laughs> just just make it a good dimension. Yeah. Uh it was just that was the most disappointing part of that campaign and I actually read through the whole thing um once I got to the end of the book and I realized that this was an unfulfilled desire and if my players at the end of the campaign asked me, "Hey, so what was going on with this guy?" I would have nothing to tell them. Mm. That was just a major disappointment to me. I remember, of course, I was a player in your Vandelver campaign. I think we've established that by this point. I remember being very interested in Glassstaff and wondering what he was up to and where he was hiding and who he was. And he, you made him a fun villain. And we've discussed since the campaign about how much extra effort that you put into Glassstaff that didn't have anything to do with what you were provided in the module. But even with you giving it a little pizzazz, I walked in to the room with the rest of the party to face the black spider, and I walked into it like it was any other encounter. Um, and we dealt with it like it was any other encounter. And that... Right. And I'm not putting this on you or saying that that moment was disappointing... Um, because we had a lot of fun and we wrapped up that campaign really well, but it was certainly lackluster compared to even earlier fights in the dungeon against minions and mobs. Right, well, here's the thing about the Black Spider, is his presence is known. Very early on in the campaign, you find his yes. insignia. Very early on in the campaign, you hear his name. So he is teased that there is this entity out there called the Black Spider who has his fingers in all of these pies. I'm, I'm doing stuff. Yeah. Look at me, I'm the villain, I'm here. Yep, All, but that's basically where it ends. You know that he's there, but you don't know what he's up to. It's, it's intriguing that he is after the same thing that you are, and that he is just one step ahead of you and that he is getting in your way and how he is incredibly frustrated with the party because he notices them trying to unravel his plans. But, but we don't know what those really, plans are. But you don't know what those plans are. And it's not in the book. 
I don't know what those <laughs> plans are. I tried to run that module fairly close to exactly the way it was written. I did not add in any character motivations. You know, all I did was add in a couple of NPCs that the so that the party could have someone to talk to, you know, whenever they weren't in town. But I just couldn't get over my disappointment that there was no plan to uncover because it felt like we were building to a payoff that never came. My players, yourself included, walked into that encounter and the guy says, oh, hi, I'm the black spider that you've been hearing about. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard of me. Yep. I, I really tried to make that a little bit more dramatic, um, but that's about where it ended up. That is, I mean, that's a danger of running it exactly as written. You know, sometimes it's not well written. First campaign, you live and you learn. So, that's what a bad... I'm sorry, Wizards of the Coast. I, we do really appreciate you and everything that you've <laughs> done for us. That's how a bad villain and their plot come around. Let's talk about how to make a good evil plot. Okay. What's the first thing that you consider, Rob, when designing a villain? Or a collection of villains like the Research Collective? What do they want? Uh, Power? Sorry, <laughs> it's it's what they want. Okay. <laughs> it's to eradicate the source of their fear. It's the object of their revenge or the object of their obsession. It is the, the crown. It is the phenomenal cosmic power. When I think of a villain, I need to know what it is that they want first. You know, what is the thing that gets them going in the morning? Mm-hmm. Okay. What's the second thing that you consider? Once you know what the villain wants, whether it's the girl or whether it's power or whether it's to right the wrongs, the perceived wrongs in the world, what's up next? Uh, well, obviously they need a way to get it. And that is somewhat dependent on who they are and what their situation is. You know, if I have... If the villain of my campaign is the evil king. The evil king has armies. He has court sorcerers. He has powerful knights. And he has a country full of patriots ready to arm themselves at his beck and call. Versus if you have a evil wizard mm -hmm. who is alone in their tower and flying dark magics and fell rituals or creating an army of undead, or assembling stone golems beneath the earth, or perhaps a drow assassin who maybe only has one or two accomplices, but has a network of informants and spies and a few greased palms in the right social circles. You know, what elements do they have that they can bring to bear to make their dreams come true. Right. So as far as the goal is concerned, we talked about a lot of different motivators. And obviously the goal of your villain is to uh, attain what they lack. Mm -hmm. But I think probably the most defining feature of your villain is this that we just discussed. It's how do they go about it? What resources do they have at their disposal? What uh, resources do they need? And how do they acquire those resources in order to enact the plan? Like, it's a very different campaign if your uh, big bad evil guy is the evil king who has armies at his disposal and who has court subjects and court sorcerers and all of this stuff, or if your campaign is centered around a, a blade in the dark, you know, a entity that is unknown and is uh, sneaking around and doing things in a clandestine way. It's like So the evil king is going to be ostentatious. The assassin is going to be clandestine. And that just completely changes the tone of the campaign for that to be your opposition. It very much does. And you know what else can change the tone of the campaign? When we're talking about the BBEG, big bad evil guy, your villain might not be a guy. This is Dungeons and Dragons. This is a fantasy world that has fae and undead and demons and devils and dark gods and eldritch beings. You know, 
screw the evil king. What about a lord of hell? What about an abyssal creature? Titania, queen of the unseelie court. Right, or Tiamat, five-headed evil dragon tyrant. Yeah, there you go. Uh, or the Demogorgon, or Grazd, or, Asmode- or Asmodeus, Asmodeus, how do you say that? Uh, I say Asmodeus. Or, as in your campaign, a group like the Arcane Research Collective. Or mm-hmm. let's take a critical role. I don't think they fully realized this plot line, but the Cerberus Assembly. That is a collection of three extremely powerful and diametrically opposed magicians, right? They are individually powerful. They are collectively insanely powerful, uh, but they're not necessarily unified, and that adds its own little flavor. The other thing that I think is really important to defining your villain is what they are missing, Like, Mm. if the villain had everything that they needed in order to enact this plan and take over the world, then you wouldn't have a campaign. You would have a post-apocalyptic wasteland, or you would have a society where the entire populace has been completely subjugated. Which, in all fairness, could be a campaign. Uh, Tabletop Terrors uh, has created a setting called Dragon Grin, where the whole premise of the setting is that evil has already won, and the light has all but died, and hope is all but extinguished, and you are fighting a losing battle every time you step into Dragon Grin. So there is some, there is a campaign in there, and that could be a lot of fun, but normally you're trying to stop the bad guy from doing the bad thing, and so there's there's a chance that's that's your adventure hook. You're trying to prevent, like you said, that last piece of the puzzle from fitting together. Right. You know, often this is going to be the MacGuffin of your campaign. This is going to be the the super magical, powerful, whatchamacallit. The object itself is practically inconsequential. What matters is that the villain wants it, and if they get it, then their plan will come to fruition. The Waterdeep Dragon Heist adventure module, that book is pretty much entirely predicated, no matter which villain you are up against, on them all needing this one particular item, the Stone of Galore. And that's the MacGuffin. That's the one thing they're missing. The villain of the campaign would have the dragons, would have completed the heist, if only they had that stone. And you know that is a key, easily latched onto narrative hook of... I need this thing. I don't have it. What do I need to do? What am I willing to do? What or who must I sacrifice to get this thing? Before we move on, let's talk about designing the villain. Like you said before, designing a villain is a lot like designing a character. I think you said that. Like we said before, (laughs) designing a villain is a lot like designing a character. And whenever you do it, you actually go through that same process. Is that right? Yeah. So I don't need to know every monster's ideals or their flaws or their bonds or their personality traits or the things that we discussed in a previous episode are very important to a character that you're going to be role-playing consistently. Right. But for the villain who you are going to be role-playing consistently, even if the player characters aren't around to see it, it's important to nail down who they are as a person or as an entity right? from the get-go. Right. So they need the same things player characters need. They need ideals and bonds and flaws and personality traits. Yeah, backstories, uh, motivations, the same sorts of things that we give to the player characters. We need to know what befits them mm-hmm. in their given situation against the heroes. Um, You know, and maybe they interact with the heroes and all this is readily apparent, or maybe they're a shadowy force on the other side of the curtain. Maybe they wear all of this stuff on their sleeve and it becomes readily apparent to the heroes. Maybe uh, this stuff never comes to light. But I agree that it is very important to understand it so that you know how your villain is going to react to the actions of the player characters, because that's how we keep things believable. Right. So... 
when you are creating a villain, a great place to start after you know what they are, like from a stat block standpoint, what kind of creature are they? Um, and what they are, what they want, what they are interested in, what they are obsessed with or fixated on. Go ahead and decide what's their ideal and how the the motivating factor for them might play into that. Uh, what is their bond? What is their flaw? And by flaw, I don't mean weakness. It might be fun for your villain to have a a weakness as well, but what is a a personality? flaw a shortcoming that they possess yep it could be their ego you know it could be pride that's a lot of times people will think of pride as something that is Mm. you know you know being proud of yourself is a virtue but hubris hubris could be a achilles heel for your villain it could be a way that you know they think that the heroes are completely beneath them not even worthy of their notice but then somehow the heroes manage to damage their pride and suddenly the heroes are on the radar and they may have a target on their backs pride cometh before a fall Uh, it's also convenient necessary actually for you to nail down what your villain is afraid of as we mentioned before no creature is immune to fear Actually, I take that back. The The way that I use demons in my campaign, they are immune to fear. They lack a self-preservation instinct. They just want blood and rage and carnage, and they don't care how messed up they get on the way to making that happen. But I also typically don't make demons the BBEGs of my campaign. I use them, but because they are so chaotic, because they are so reckless... They don't usually have schemes. They don't have plots. They don't have intentions or methods of making long-term goals happen that don't involve just hitting things repeatedly. Right. They don't have any complicated machinations. They're just instruments of wanton destruction. Equally bad. Not as interesting, in my opinion. That's why um, devils make better BBEGs than demons in my book. And to make a point there... I think that that is because devils are lawful creatures and demons are chaotic creatures. Mm -hmm. I think that having a villain who operates under a set code of conduct or has, at the very least, some sort of rule that they are not willing to break or something that they are not willing to sacrifice in order to see their goals accomplished, I think that that makes them a lot more interesting and this plays very well into the relatable villain or at least the um you know maybe not the redeemable villain but you know the guys who you can we can see how you got there um the ones who think that they are solving a problem they are almost always going to have something that they are not willing to give up there's a reason that they're on this path and as a consequence of that there is something that they're not going to divert from I also really like that idea of having a line that even the villain won't cross. Mm -hmm. It may not be a completely sensible one. It may be one that the players can relate to, or it may not. It may be, say, the players come to a town that has recently been attacked by the villain's forces, and the homes were burned down, and the men and the women were killed, but no children were harmed. Mm-hmm. As the villain draws the line at children. Right. That could be their ideal. That could be, you know, children could be their ideal. Children could be their bond. That's why, this is one of those things that I think helps make your villain seem real, you know? I think, I actually kind of like this one. I might have to use it later. You come into town, and again, the the Shady Vale has completely been burned down. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. But the church is still standing. Right. Some sort of evil cleric has gone rogue and they're uh, purging the land of all the pagans and the heretics, but that church needs to stand. Or I've thought about having a campaign sometime where we have an evil druid on the loose because, man, druids are broken as heck, aren't they? Mm. Um, But they level the town without disturbing 
a single blade of grass or singeing the leaves on a tree. Mm. You know, this is the great return to nature. You know, we're going to get rid of all of the scars that humanity had left on this town. A fantasy eco-terrorist. Basically, yeah. I mean, druids would be great for that. Oh, yeah. No argument here. Um, Circle of Spores, especially. (laughs) And I think if you're going to be making a villain that has that touch of humanity who is somewhat relatable and give them that line that they won't cross, imagine the circumstances that might push them past that line. Hmm. When, if for some reason, crossing that line might get them to their end goal in a heated moment, would they tiptoe past it? Would they do that thing that they consider unthinkable if it meant having everything? What kind of a character moment would that be for your villain to lose that last shred of humanity? I'll tell you exactly what kind of moment that would be. That would be like when a character forsakes their bond in order to accomplish their ideal or avoid their flaw. Mm-hmm. And a great example of this, kudos to Marvel Comics and the MCU, is when Thanos pushes Gamora over the edge of the cliff. Good, good pull. Yep. He forsakes the only person in the universe that he cares that much about in order to get one step closer, not even to accomplish the goal, but to get one unavoidable step closer to saving the world to being a hero in his own mind it's kind of that analogy where you know a train is going down the tracks and you have the lever in your hand and if the train continues the way it's going it will run over the school children who are crossing the train tracks for some reason Um, but if you pull the lever and save all those children's lives and divert them you're going to run over your wife or your mother or your child someone personally valuable to you yes do you sacrifice the one to save the many and that sort of question too i think would be very telling for your villain would they do that sort of thing are they concerned with the greater good or are they a little bit more selfish in their line of reasoning are they emotionally attached or are they not emotionally attached I wish we could talk about the villain in our campaign. Do it. Ah. Do it. No. I I hope that my players will listen to the podcast I make, and I don't want to spoil it for them. Well, since Rob is chickening out, I think we're going to have to wrap this one up. We do have more to talk about with villains, uh, specifically about once you've designed them, how are you going to implement them in your campaign to where they make a difference to your players and where stopping them is going to be on your player character's radar, and hopefully even their top priority. A villain that your players don't fear isn't doing his job. Exactly. So hopefully the discussion about how to create your villain, which is very similar to your process for making a player character, understanding their motivation, and then having a plan for how they're going to accomplish this. Understanding those different aspects of your villain will make them very relatable and will make it much easier for you to implement them because you will know how they will react to any situation that the player characters may put them in. You know, maybe this avenue of accomplishing the goal has been thwarted, but they can still take this approach. Or, you know what? The players stole the MacGuffin, you know? They prevented you from taking it when you needed it, but you can get it back from them. How are you going to go about it, though? Are you going to sneak in and steal it from them in the night? Are you going to uh, manipulate the powers that be that they know and respect into demanding it from them? Are you going to summon an army to take them by force? Are you going to kidnap the their family members, the people that they care about, and hold them hostage for ransom and blackmail them into giving it back to you? Understanding your character on this level will help you answer that question when it comes up. Amen, man. All right. I think that's probably enough for now. I guess we should tell people where they can get some more of us if they're not tired of us yet. Yeah, so who are you and why are you here, Rob? I am D&D Wannabe, uh, the D&D Wannabe at gmail.com, D&D Wannabe on Twitter. 
I am a content creator for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. I write articles and modules and make podcasts about my thoughts, opinions, and insights into the game and you know, fun little adventures for you and your friends to go on. My work is for sale at MistyMountainGaming.com. And uh, who are you and how can they find you? Well, sadly, I am none of those things. I am just Steven. But one thing that I do is host a Discord server, where if you value my opinions or have any questions about the topics that we've discussed today, you can come and find me and Rob on there. I'll put a link in the description of this episode so that you can uh, come and join the community that we started there. Uh, And you can get those answers from me much quicker than you could by waiting until the next episode which we hope to release next week. All right, well, until then, I'm Rob. And I'm Steven. And remember, villains are people too. (laughs) See you next time. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. You can find more of his music at serpentsoundstudios.com. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic twinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. And that is why, maggots, you always carry a ranged or thrown weapon when you're on duty. Right, that concludes our evil minion orientation course. As you exit, be sure to stop and collect your commemorative tote bags. Are there any questions before you are dismissed? Yes, the goblin with his hand up in the air jumping excitedly on the desk. Well, I, uh, uh, that is actually... The, the truth is... Alright, listen up, maggots. Seems that you have heard a lot of false information. It is time to go ahead and correct your misunderstandings. Let me introduce you to the real Gormonger the Bloodthirsty.